This week on Monocle Reports, is the future of work one of automation, artificial intelligence and robots? Everyone recognises this is a phenomenally successful business and if you can have it in your city, that's jobs for your people and it's worth offering remarkable tax benefits to make that happen. As more and more industries become reliant upon machine-based workforces, whose responsibility is the automated future? And when you have a group of people come together, certain norms will eventually emerge. But I think culture needs to be much more intentional. And I think that's where organizations come in. We'll find out how a positive workplace culture can help companies navigate the rocky waters of change. From Midori House in London, I'm Ben Ryland, and this is Monocle Reports. Okay, Google, what is artificial intelligence? According to Wikipedia, artificial intelligence, sometimes called machine intelligence, is intelligence demonstrated by machines in contrast to the natural intelligence displayed by humans and other animals. Asking your phone or smart speaker a question is just one of the ways that AI has taken center stage in today's technology. Of course, AI has actually been hiding behind the scenes of our daily lives for much longer from online banking to setting the prices of airfares or nights at a hotel. But there's a darker side to all of this machine-powered ingenuity. What happens if one of those AI robots eventually replaces you? David Phelan is Monocle's technology correspondent. David, Amazon's coverage in the press is always a bit hot and cold. One minute they're the answer to any given city's unemployment woes. Then they're destroying the local shopping scene. In some ways, it's a double-edged sword. It's a company that more than most everybody comes into contact with because even if we're eager to keep the high street alive, there are things that late on a Friday night you want early on a Saturday morning and therefore you go to Amazon because it's there and it has everything that you could want. So people are eager, but then they're also thinking but maybe it's not helping the high street in the way that I also want. When we talk about the people who are working at the warehouses, so the majority of those sorts of jobs that that people are talking about, when we read the stories about where Amazon is going to build its next warehouse, what kind of jobs are we talking about typically? There are different kinds of jobs, obviously, in such a big organisation. There's the lowest paid, though still very important, of course, are the fulfilment centre jobs. These are the workers who've just had a pay rise from $10 to $15 in the US or from £8 to £9.50 in the UK, who actually make the company work because they're working in those fulfilment centres. But the new HQ, or two sets of headquarters, as is currently in consideration as well, will have people further up the scale largely. Does it look as if cities are becoming more reliant on companies like Amazon, or is that just a perception that's being created by the rather enthusiastic media coverage that the company attracts? I think the fact that so many different cities have been wooing Amazon to get a second HQ in their city, in their state, has given a very keen indication that everyone recognises this is a phenomenally successful business. And if you can have it in your city, that's jobs for your people. And it's worth offering remarkable tax benefits to make that happen. 
There have been recent reports that uh, Amazon has hired less holiday workers this year than in previous years, and some have read that to mean that more and more functions inside Amazon's warehouses are becoming automated. And ultimately, I suppose, for Amazon as a technology company, that probably is going to be the way forward. What does that mean for Amazon as an employer? I think the statistic that always slightly boggles my mind about Amazon is how much it spends on research and development. I had to play a guessing game about three or four times and I got nowhere near the figure. They spend $23 billion a year on research and development, almost $2 billion a month. I mean, it's a phenomenal idea to get your head around that. Although obviously Alexa and the devices that they make are very costly in terms of research and development. There's still quite a lot that is going into very definitely making better robots so that you can employ fewer people. We recently saw reports of Uniqlo installing a robotic system powered by AI in one of its warehouses in Japan. Now that allowed that particular warehouse to cut its staffing levels by 90%. That happened quite quickly. It was really just install this equipment, out they go. Now, with that in mind, if that's the way forward for Amazon, is it a problem? Is it a mistake for cities to be courting a company like this, given the number of tax breaks and all of the concessions that a lot of cities have been willing to do? It could lead to a little bit of short-termism, perhaps. Perhaps. I always feel that, you know, for decades, maybe way longer than decades, we've been faced with the spectre of automation doing people out of jobs. And obviously that has happened in many industries. But the fact is that in advanced societies like the US, like the UK, employment is at very high levels. So I'm sure it's true that people switch to different jobs. But I think that automation on itself, robots on their own, don't necessarily put people out of work. Is there a gap, however, between companies like Amazon that are investing a lot into automation for obvious reasons, because it makes good business sense, but also the idea of who is going to be responsible for the people who are displaced by this technology? If we are talking about corporate responsibility and ethics, is there an argument for companies like Amazon, like Uniqlo, like all of the others that would be in those brackets as well, to be considering the repercussions of more and more automation Or should we be putting that responsibility on elected officials, on governments? I think definitely it's partly the responsibility of the companies. Of course, it must be. And, you know, the thing with Amazon is once it cracks how to make a factory that's 90% people free, I think there's a very long way to go before that. But when the robots are really doing almost everything... You can bet that the next thing Amazon is going to do is license that knowledge and that capability to other companies, that obviously ones they don't see as rivals, because so much of Amazon's income actually comes from Amazon Web Services and other things that none of us see because they're completely behind the scenes. But they are very, very good at taking technology and making it work to scale. And certainly they will, I believe, offer those kind of automation techniques outside their company and license them. So yes, you suddenly do then see a certain group of jobs, like fulfillment centre workers, becoming an endangered species. And I think, yes, it can't just be reliant on government to fix that. David Phelan, Monocle's technology correspondent.
The television series Black Mirror has turned predictions of the technological future into an entertainment phenomenon. Of course, books and films have been taking a dark view of how humans might use and abuse science and innovation for centuries. From Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, first published in 1818, to Fritz Lang's masterpiece of silent cinema, Metropolis, released in 1927. Sixty years later, director Paul Verhoeven put his own spin on how robotics and artificial intelligence might revolutionize law enforcement, and not necessarily for the better. Better alive, you are coming with me. dystopian near-future Detroit, police officer Alex Murphy is shot and basically killed while on the job. His mangled body, however, is selected by a company called Omni Consumer Products, which, after an agreement with the city government, has just taken control of the chronically underfunded police force. Murphy's body is replaced, almost entirely, with a robotic system, but his brain is retained, turning him into a half-man Half-robot, cyborg, supercop. He's on. What's the story? We were able to save the left arm. What? I thought we agreed on total body prosthesis. Now lose the arm, okay? Jesus, man. On the surface, Robocop is a memorable 80s action movie, but at its heart, the film is a biting satire on how innovations that are ostensibly aimed at improving life for everyone often end up benefiting a wealthy few. The aim of a robot police officer is to keep the community safer while also reducing the cost of law enforcement and the reliance on people to undertake dangerous work. Clarence Bodiger, you are under arrest. You have the right to remain silent. Robocop doesn't need downtime, except when he's recharging, so he can work longer hours. He won't take sick leave or holidays and doesn't need health insurance. And those bullets, well, they bounce right off him, so no need for the old human police to put themselves in harm's way. But while confronting gang violence and drug lords is done without fear of bloodshed, this increased militarization of the police seems to have resulted in an awfully big payday for the company behind Robocop's construction. The human police, meanwhile, treat the idea of automated policing with suspicion. A lack of employment prospects is what led to Detroit's policing crisis in the first place. If this is the future of law enforcement, what's in store for them when the machines become more valuable than the humans? Your move, creep. You're listening to Monocle Reports. This week, we're looking at how new technologies are reshaping the future of work. I'm Ben Rylan. When newspapers were forced to reckon with the arrival of the digital age, the result, for some, proved to be existential. The automated workplace will, for many, arrive sooner than they'd hope. So, are we equipped to handle the transition? A warehouse in Tokyo operated by the clothing giant Uniqlo checks and sorts stock 24 hours a day. But while the productivity never ceases, you might be surprised at the lack of staff. 
That's because this warehouse recently installed a new robotic system. Now, with the help of artificial intelligence, robots can continue working when humans once would have been off the clock. The system allowed Uniqlo to cut its staff at the warehouse by 90%. Predictions of an automated future have caused alarm across much of the world. A recent report from the World Economic Forum suggested that machines will perform more than half of all work tasks by 2025, up from just 29% today. The former chair of Alphabet, Eric Schmidt, told a Goldman Sachs forum that while there might be growing pains, the ultimate result will be a positive one. I think you're seeing the difference between supply and demand play out. But the fact of the matter is we have very good news, right? That computer science is now the number one major in essentially all of the top universities. I call this the Mark Zuckerberg effect. But the important point is you have all of these people in their sort of late teens, early 20s who are choosing computer science. And my friends in, in universities say we're now getting the best students. History does suggest that while technological innovations can cause industry displacements in the short term, the long-term result is usually more jobs. Then again, history doesn't usually repeat itself. Jan Michki is from the McKinsey Global Institute. He says that while the future may be complex, there are many opportunities to be found by those willing and ready to go looking for them. It is complex indeed. To some extent, there's obviously also opportunities created by that. If you look at the, the aging of populations, it actually does mean very large needs for more elderly care, for more health care and so on. That creates job opportunities outside the digital space for workers of all ages. When it comes more towards to the reskilling of, of using machines or actually even then eventually programming and, and de developing machines and, and, and algorithms, of course that is more challenging. But actually in, in, in most of our discussions what came up is that that is less a matter of age and more a matter of attitude. At the heart of the AI conversation lies a paradox. The responsibility for employment and economies usually sits with governments, but often it's the large multinational corporations that hold all the power. If Amazon decided to automate 90% of its currently people-powered functions tomorrow, there's probably very little our elected representatives could do about it. And if, as is more likely, big corporations slowly transitioned certain sectors to full automation over several years. How many governments would prioritize such future planning, given that the ultimate impact would take effect beyond their term in office? The good news is that in many of the discussions that I have, both with national governments as well as at EU levels in Brussels, actually there is a fair bit of recognition of both the need to digitize more and become more competitive in the in the digital world as well as for the need to reskilling and quite a lot of proposals are being made to address that unfortunately that doesn't necessarily mean we are moving fast enough i actually think we are not but at least the the debates are happening and progress is starting and actually some nations are, are even experimenting with with fairly radical things like the universal basic income experiment in, in finland the last few months have been particularly heavy with political upheaval in the US, the UK and in Europe. And the signs suggest that it will only get more chaotic in the months and years ahead. 
So if business is steering this employment revolution, are there enough steady hands at the wheel? Jan Mitschke is optimistic. There are certainly leaders and good examples to learn from pretty much all topics that are relevant. If you look, for instance, at the need for pushing digitization in a country, in an economy, then even within Europe, a country like Estonia is, is well known for, for leading the charge on public sector digitization. And when you look at reskilling, there's actually a couple of companies that are stepping ahead. And uh, one public example is, uh, for instance, SAP, who have been deploying a large scheme to assess what skills they will need in the future that compares to the present, and then developed a, a plan to actually train ten thousands of employees. Technology will only ever be as valuable as the benefits it brings us. No one can stop progress, but we ought to be able to ensure that new innovations are designed to work not against us, but with and for all of us. Our thanks to Jan Mitschke from the McKinsey Global Institute in Zurich for contributing to that report. Every company will at some point be forced to confront a time of great change. When that moment arrives, what will determine whether a company is equipped to handle the transition? Well, Kelly Monaghan is from Deloitte's Centre for Integrated Research. Kelly, you say that a healthy workplace culture is one of the defining factors of a company's ability to deal with times of trouble. First up, what exactly do you mean when you say culture? Workplace culture is one of those words that I think a lot of people use without necessarily understanding the elements of what it's comprised of. The way I think of workplace culture is really when, let's say, you and I interact together, there's a culture and social norms beginning to emerge. And I think within organizational culture, what organizations try to do is either put policies in place or structure around that to make sure that when you and I interact, it's aligned to the goals and vision of the organization. And so I think workplace culture is constantly evolving. It's constantly emerging. And it's almost something that it's really hard to control because it's based on our interactions every day. A lot of people might consider a workplace culture to be something that's simply incidental. It's just there. When you group a bunch of people together, a culture will at some point start to emerge. Yes. So it's funny. I do think that's a common, and I almost want to say somewhat of a misconception with culture, because I think you're absolutely right. When you have a group of people come together, certain norms will eventually emerge. But I think culture needs to be much more intentional. And I think that's where organizations come in. I think if you put together a bunch of people and they don't have a common purpose, they don't have a common communication channels and norms by which we exist, I think toxic cultures can easily emerge. Because no matter what, I think the one thing that will no matter what happened with a group of people, power dynamics. So someone's going to want to take charge. Someone's going to want to reinforce, here's what we're here for. And if an organization does not have the right policies in place and just the right structure and environment where people, the term, you know, we see happening a lot in the organizational behavior literature is psychological safety. If people don't have that psychological safety to to voice their opinion, to be a part of that culture and influence that, 
someone's going to take it over, and I'm not sure it's necessarily the right person in the group <laughs> you want dictating that culture. You might end up with something like Lord of the Flies. You might end up with Lord of the, the Flies. The U.S. Congress, for example. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's been a tough. <laughs> well, to what degree is a workplace culture created organically by the people as opposed to something that's more deliberately invented by the company itself? Mm-hmm. Something that we've been studying a lot actually right now at Deloitte, we see two things emerging. One, I don't know here in the UK if you're seeing the same thing in your organizations. One is we're seeing this rise of, we call it hoacracy or self-managed teams. So they put a bunch of people together and they say, okay, practice human decency and let whatever culture emerge. It's very much no control, a lot of autonomy within these small groups. And so what you see happening is within a larger organization, a lot of small subcultures emerging. And I think there's pros and cons to that. One, it certainly allows for a lot more individuality within the organization. But at the same time, you all might not be speaking the same language. And I think more dangerously, you might not all be heading in the right direction, at least at the same pace. What we also see in the opposite of that is more of the command and control hierarchy structures, which is very much authoritative culture. You know exactly what your marching orders are, and you know exactly the way that you're supposed to do that. The problem is that's not great for creativity and innovation, which is exactly what we need today. And so I think there's this very compelling question that's happening right now is what is the right culture that takes all the advantage of hierarchy where you have role clarity, you have decision making. There's no stress in that. You know what that is, but it stifles innovation where some of the chaos with some of these self-managed teams, but very much breed innovation, creativity. What's the right balance between those two cultures, which is what we're trying to create today? Are there any high-profile examples that people might know of that you can think of that represents what would be a positive working culture? Yes. So it's funny. The one that comes to mind that we've been actively studying right now within our Future of Work case studies is actually Amazon. And so Amazon headquarters very much is trying to find the balance right now between these two, where they have a very strong purpose. They exactly know what they're trying to do, but yet they allow a lot of these autonomous teams and small work groups to form. And they're very fluid. So they come together, solve a big problem, and then disband and get the right other people together to solve a new problem. I'm a little bit hesitant with that example at times, though, too, because I still think there's some work to do in the company culture as it relates to their supply chain and distributions. And so we're very much anxious to see a new company to kind of take on this culture. Google also tends to be one of the other examples that's used. But the trouble that we're having in the tech space, at least in Silicon Valley, these companies were able to do that when they were small. So the bigger question is, how do you scale that culture when you start talking about 10, 15, 20,000 people. It's much easier to do this when we're talking about 150 to 1,000 people. So anxious to see what other cultures may come up, but we haven't seen a great example right now. Well, and of course, there's the added problem uh, when a company gets big that sometimes, quite often, in fact, they're located in various different locations around the world. And even Monocle, Monocle is not a huge company by any means, but we still have Bureau located in all pockets of the globe and correspondence on top of that. And of course, the challenges do arise that, yes, there is a company culture, but how sure can the company be that that culture is being reflected positively in other locations outside of the main headquarters. It's a huge challenge right now. And I think one of the things that we're seeing emerge within the research is if a company has a very strong purpose, so everyone knows why they're showing up each day, is the baseline. And it's surprisingly, when I do a lot of research on worker motivations and attitudes, I see people don't actually know why they're doing what they're doing each day. They come in, it's either for a paycheck or it's some very localized reason. And so I think it's a challenge of a global company to really have a shared purpose that they want all of their employees. I don't care what location you are, where you do your work, we're all doing the same thing. And I think actually a great example of this is Salesforce. 
no matter what building you go into, whether it's here in London or in San Francisco, the layout and the culture is exactly the same. They have the same artifacts in place, the same norms that they expect their employees as soon as they enter that building. But I think the challenge is as we start thinking through, to your point, employees that are no longer even showing up in those locations. So I think all the time of an Uber driver or Lyft, they are the brand of the company and have never yet stepped in foot of, I'm sure, Uber's headquarters or have taken part in some of that training. And so I think there's a lot of onus on the organization to really be pushing down strong communication, strong cultural norms, and making sure that they exist, but at the same time yet protecting a little bit of that creativity that you might want to have emerge within some of your localized offices. So once again, it's a tension point and balance for global companies. Kelly Monahan from Deloitte. Thank you. So, who's most at risk from automation? Well, according to McKinsey's report, the United States and Germany will encounter the most difficulty adjusting to the changes. Jobs rooted in creativity and cognitive processes will become even more prized, while positions involving physical labor will become more at risk of automation. But in the United States, the number of jobs in healthcare is actually forecast to rise, largely due to an aging population. As McKinsey's report notes, governments took an active role in the aftermath of the Second World War to jumpstart the jobs market and start rebuilding. Governments could, or you could say should, take the lead here too. For more news and analysis, tune into Monocle 24's live daily programming or catch up via your preferred podcast platform anytime you like. This program was edited by Kenya Scarlett. I'm Ben Ryland. That's Monocle Reports. Goodbye.